Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. So I am going to start off with a sip of my reading wine because I have a listener who says that that is exceptionally important to them. But I start with the reading wine, so I'm going to do that. Okay. I am also very glad that I started with reading wine because reading wine makes everything better. Yes. Welcome to Public Domain Radio. Thank you. Tell us a little about yourself. I am Lucy Blue. I have been a published author since about... 1999-2000. I have done six books with Pocketbook Simon & Schuster that were long-form historical romances, but the last few years I have been working with Falstaff Books out of Charlotte, North Carolina, a publisher I know you know well. Uh, I I am (laughs) uh, the editor for Falstaff Crush, which is Falstaff's romance line, and I also write books for them. And uh, my, the main thing that I've been doing lately is a series of sweet, cozy, Agatha Christie-style mysteries featuring Stella Hart, an American silent movie actress who solves crimes, solves murders with her gorgeous English 13th Baronet of Kingsley-on-Pike fiancé, George. Which, like, I love the concept behind these I, every time i think of them i think of them as basically um like downton abbey meets miss fisher's murder mysteries yes, meets uh i i don't know something golden age of hollywood yeah very um let's see bringing up baby you know, there's a lot of that yes. back and forth like Catherine hepburn Cary grant kind of stuff um the thin man's big influence uh I always say these are the books that if P.G. Woodhouse and Agatha Christie had run away to Mallorca for a wild weekend, these are the books they would have written while they were there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. That would be amazing. Wouldn't that be so great if that happened? Yes. Yes. Uh, that is fantastic. Thank you. Um, so do you have a beverage? I do. I, in honor of George and Stella, I actually have a G&T. I have a gin and tonic right here. Oh, well, cheers to you. There we go. Oh, I love that glass. Thank you. And what are you going to read for us? Um, well, I thought that I would see we're doing a little bit of an influence and then a little bit of me, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. In whatever order you want. Okay. Um, I actually thought I would read a little Woodhouse to start with. That's fantastic. Um, um, it's from 
the Code of the Woosters, which is one of the Jeeves and Wooster novels. You know, Bertie Wooster is the epitome of the upper-class twit. He is the most well-meaning guy in the world. He is dumb as a box of wet mice. Luckily, he has Jeeves, his valet, who is preternaturally intelligent. He can figure out how to solve any problem. And even Bertie's friends come to Jeeves with their complicated problems, and Jeeves somehow endeavors to solve them, always in a way which benefits Jeeves in some way. Oh, um, naturally. One of my favorite ones is the one where, I can't remember the, the name of the story, but um, one of Bertie's friends has fallen in love with a diner waitress and wants his rich uncle to approve the match. And they bring that problem to Jeeves, and Jeeves works it around where um, uh, he convinces the guy that he's going to lose his inheritance. It's a bad idea. and all that. But then at the very end, you find out, oh, and by the way, the beautiful young lady in question, yes, she's now engaged to Jeeves. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the one I'm going to read is The Code of the Boosters, and it's probably probably the most complicated of a twist, very much bringing up babies, screwball comedy. Um, Which I love. Yeah, me too, me too. And Bertie has gone to this country house because one, he's supposed to be stealing a silver cow creamer for his aunt, for reasons I won't go into because this show only lasts so long. We've all had an aunt who asked us to steal something. Exactly. And his friend Gussie, is engaged to be married to a young woman named Madeline Bassett, but he has sent him frantic telegrams telling him, Bertie, you have to help me. She's getting ready to dump me. You've got to come help. Meanwhile, Bertie has a very strong motive for wanting to help because Madeline has said that if anything ever happens, her fallback guy is Bertie. She says not to worry. She's convinced that Bertie is in love with her and that, you know, if, if anything ever happens, you know, what she'll do, she'll martyr herself and marry Bertie. Bertie describes her to his aunt as a female who thinks every time a fairy blows its wee nose, a baby is born. <laughs> <laughs> so needless to say, he is keen to escape the clutches of Madeline. So this is a scene between Bertie and Madeline where she has discovered that he has come to the country house like a week or so before her wedding. She was standing by the barometer, which, if it had had an ounce of sense in its head, would have been pointing to stormy instead of set fair. And as I hove alongside, she turned and gazed at me with a tender goggle which sent a thrill of dread creeping down the Wooster spine. The thought that there stood one who was on distant terms with Gussie and might ere long return the ring in presence afflicted me with a nameless horror. I resolved that if a few quiet words from a man of the world could heal the breach, they should be spoken. Oh, Bertie, she said in a low voice, like beer trickling out of a jug, you ought not to be here. My recent interview with old Bassett and Roderick Spode had rather set me thinking along those lines myself, but I hadn't time to explain that this was no idle social visit, and if Gussie hadn't been sending out SOSs, I wouldn't have dreamed of coming within a hundred miles of the frightful place. She went on, looking at me as if I were a rabbit, which she was expecting shortly to turn into a gnome. Why did you come? Oh, I know what you're going to say. You felt that cost what it might, you had to see me again just once. You could not resist the urge to take away with you one last memory which you could cherish down the lonely years. Oh, Bertie, you remind me of Rudell. The name was new to me. Rudell? 
the Senior Jeffrey Rudell, Prince of Blay on Centonia. I shook my head. Never met him, I'm afraid. Pal of yours? He lived in the Middle Ages. He was a great poet, and he fell in love with the wife of the Lord of Tripoli. I stirred uneasily. I hoped she was going to keep it clean. <laughs> For years he loved her, and at last he could resist no longer. He took ship to Tripoli, and his servants carried him ashore. Not feeling so good, I said, groping, rough crossing. He was dying of love. Oh, ah. Uh. They bore him into the Lady Melisande's presence on a litter, and he had just strength enough to reach out and touch her hand. Then he died. She paused and heaved a sigh that seemed to come straight up from the cami-knickers. <laughs> a silence ensued. Terrific, I said, feeling I had to say something, though personally I didn't think the story a patch on the one about the traveling salesman and the farmer's daughter. Different, of course, if one had known the chap. She sighed again. You see now why I said you reminded me of Rudell. Like him, you came to take one last glimpse of the woman you loved. It was dear of you, Bertie, and I shall never forget it. It will always remain with me as a fragrant memory, like a flower pressed between the leaves of an old album. But was it wise? Should you not have been strong? Would it not have been better to have ended it all cleanly that day when we said goodbye at Brinkley Court and not to have reopened the wound? We had met, and you have loved me, and I had to tell you that my heart was another's. That should have been our farewell. Absolutely, I said. I mean to say all that was perfectly sound as far as it went. If her heart really was another's, fine. Nobody more pleased than Bertram. The whole nub of the thing was, was it? But I had a communication from Gussie, more or less indicating that you and me were... <laughs> she looked at me like someone who has just solved the crossword puzzle with a shrewd emu in the top right-hand corner. So that was why you came. You thought there might still be hope. Oh, Bertie, I'm sorry. Sorry, so sorry. Her eyes were misty with the unshed and about the size of soup plates. No, Bertie, really, there is no hope, none. You must not build dream castles. I can only cause you pain. I love Augustus. He is my man. And you haven't parted brass rags? Of course not. Then what did he mean by saying serious rift, Madeline himself? Oh, that. She laughed, another tinkling silvery one. That was nothing. It was all too perfectly silly and ridiculous. Just the teensiest, weensiest little misunderstanding. I thought I had found him flirting with my cousin Stephanie, and I was silly and jealous. But he explained everything this morning. He was only taking a fly out of her eye. I suppose I might legitimately have been a bit shirty on learning that I had been hauled all the way down here for nothing, but I wasn't. I was amazingly braced. As I have indicated, that telegram of Gussie had shaken me to my foundations, causing me to fear the worst. And now the all clear had been blown and I had received absolute inside information straight from the horse's mouth that all was hotsy-totsy between this blister and himself. So everything's all right, is it? Everything. I've never loved Augustus more than I do now. Haven't you, by Jove? Each moment I am with him, his wonderful nature seems to open before me like some lovely flower. Does it, egad? Every day I find myself discovering some new facet of his extraordinary character. For instance, have you seen him quite lately? You have seen him quite lately, have you not? Oh, rather, I gave him dinner at the drones only the night before last. I wonder if you noticed any difference in him. I threw my mind back to the binge in question. As far as I could recollect, Gussie had been the same fish-faced freak I had always known. Difference? No, I don't think so. Of course, at that dinner, I hadn't the chance to observe him very closely, subject his character to the final analysis, if you know what I mean. He sat next to me and we talked of this and that, but you know how it is when you're a host. 
You have all sorts of things to divert your attention, keeping an eye on the waiters, trying to make the conversation general, hitting off cat's meat Potterbright from giving his imitation of Beatrice Lilly, a hundred little duties. But he seemed to be much the same. What sort of difference? An improvement if such a thing were possible. Have you not sometimes felt in the past, Bertie, that if Augustus had a fault, it was a tendency to be a little timid? I saw what she meant. Oh, ah, yes, of course, definitely. I remembered something Jeeves had once called Gussie. A sensitive plant, what? <laughs> exactly. You know your Shelley, Bertie. Oh, am I? That is what I've always thought of him. A sensitive plant, hardly fit for the rough and tumble of life. But recently, in this last week, in fact, he has shown, together with that wonderful dreamy sweetness of his, a force of character which I had not suspected that he possessed. He seems completely to have lost his diffidence. By Jove, yes, I said, remembering. That's right. Do you know he actually made a speech at that dinner of mine and a most admirable? And what is more, I paused. I had been on the point of saying that what was more, he had made it from start to finish on orange juice and not, as had been the case at the market Snosbury prize giving, with about three quarts of, of mixed alcoholic stimulants lapping about inside him. And I saw that the <laughs> statement might be injudicious. That market Snodsbury exhibition on the part of the adored object was no doubt something which she was trying to forget. Why, only this morning, she said, he spoke to Roderick Spode quite sharply. He did. Yes, they were arguing about something, and Augustus told, him, Augustus told him to go and boil his head. Well, well, I said. Naturally, I didn't believe it for a moment. I'm, well, I mean to say, Roderick Spode, I mean a chap who even in repose would have made an all-in wrestler pause and pick his words. The thing wasn't possible. But that's how. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my God, that was magnificent. <laughs> Thank you. What year was that published? That is I think maybe 1920, maybe as late as 23. It's about to come into public domain. So, yeah, okay, great. Uh, if it's 1920, it's already in public domain. Yeah, yeah so uh, that is wild. Uh, it's <laughs> one of the A that's so clever, and yes. it's like it reads like any modern, like comedy of errors, romantic yes. comedy, comedy of manners, even. Yes, like that could easily be a scene in a movie today. And, exactly. and like the whole time I was thinking it would be so easy to update that to be in 2020. Yes. yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the other things that like really struck me about it was how much of the language we still use exactly as it was oh, used yeah. then. Yes. Yes. Straight from the horse's mouth. You right. Know? Right. And one thing I love about it though, I mean, this was popular literature. I mean, this, this um, was not highbrow at all. But the language is beautiful, and everyone just got it. Everyone got the jokes. I mean, it wasn't a matter of dumbing it down at all. It's very intelligent, very, you know, Bernie's an idiot. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it, it, Woodhouse assumed that his audience would realize that Bernie was an idiot and that Madeline was an idiot. And you know. so Woodhouse gets criticized a lot for um, being... You know, only writing about upper class people and, and uh, but the thing of it is, if you re actually read the stuff, the upper class people are morons. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> they're lovely people, but they're you know they're stupid because they don't have to be anything but stupid. The people who are actually you know moving the world and have intelligence are um, the servants and the the middle class people and whatever. And by the way, the character that he mentions, Roderick Spode, ah. Mm -hmm. uh, who, who is like this big guy who, by the way, is madly in love with Madeline. 
Oh, um, of course. Is also a Nazi. Oh. Uh, yes. Yes. And Woodhouse absolutely eviscerates him. Through he is the ultimate buffoon. For example, he he wants to run for politics. Um. But uh, he so but he knows his movement needs to you know have a thing. and so um he they wanted to be the black shirts, but he found out that was already taken. So they're the black shorts. So they're all of these upper crust British guys rolling around in in, in full morning coats with short pants on. Oh my God! And, and at a time when that was just inconceivable for adult oh, men. Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. And by the way, at the time that these books would have been originally published, there were a lot of people in the Bertie Wooster class who were Hitler sympathizers. And so therefore to, you know, make just absolute fools of anybody uh, who had anything at all to, anything good to say about that was you know, pretty, pretty brave, pretty political. Yeah. yeah. I, it like and it's it's so sharp it's so like it's so dense with yes. content you know yes. he like he gets so much across so fast yes but it's just this nice flirtatious ridiculous romantic conversation a girl who's completely deluded <laughs> <laughs> it was phenomenal wow that oh my god i've never read any of the birdie and Woos, uh, Bur- the Wooster and Jeeves novels, yeah. and I am now desperate to read them. Yes, like, do where where should we start if we want to read that? Any one of them, if you pick it up, you should be able to follow it because again, the the core concept is 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 that Wooster has a problem and Jeeves solves it, and Fair enough. Uh, there are lots of really great and really cheap omnibus editions of Woodhouse that give you a lot of the short stories and stuff, but if you want. I think the one that I just read from is the best Jeeves and Wooster novel, and it is The Code of the Woosters. Um, okay. And that's, that's where I would start. If, if, if I wasn't sure I wanted to read everything, I would start with that, because once you've read, read that, you're going to want to read everything. Nice. Wow. Fantastic. Oh, my God. That was magnificent. So, like, how does that shape your writing? Anytime I... Am emotionally overwrought as we all are these days. Yeah. The writer that I go to is Woodhouse for everything we've been talking about. The intelligence, the lightness, the fun of it, it, it soothes me, it comforts me. So I wanted to write something that was like that for other people and that it was that experience to write it for me. But coming now to the things that aren't so great about Woodhouse, the problem with Woodhouse is Madeline Bassett, the girl we just heard, she's a pretty typical woman in the Woodhouse universe, okay? Uh. Um, you, e- you either have Madeline's or she mentions her cousin, Stephanie. Uh, Stephanie is, for lack of a better word, a ball buster. She blackmails Bertie into doing things for her. She runs off. Her fiance is the vicar and she wants him to steal something for her. Wants him to steal a policeman's helmet because, you know, she thinks the policeman is ridiculous and somebody needs to steal his helmet. Now this man is the, 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 no, he's not, he's the curate. He's the curate of the village, but he loves Stephanie. And she says, if you love me, you'll, you know, steal the policeman's helmet. So, yeah, because I want you, I mean, she's with, Again, no thought of consequences for anybody else. No, no fight past the end of her own nose. And very, 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 very bossy. 
Bertie has two aunts, Aunt Dahlia, who is the one who has him stealing the cow creamer, is his favorite aunt because she's very sporty. She, she, she's always horse because she's been riding to the hounds. So um, she, she's very loud and very brash, but she's also very intelligent. She uh, publishes a ladies magazine. His aunt Agatha is, you know, a witch right out of a fairy tale. He, she is always getting Bertie in the worst possible scrapes because she's ordering him to do the most ungodly things. I think the whole business with Madeline Bassett is Aunt Agatha's fault somehow. Um, but again, so that's what older women are like. And then younger women either, you know, give you blue balls and make you do things or they're complete simps like Madeline. Uh, the other thing about Woodhouse is he is a racist. Prepare thyself Ooh. if you are going to uh, read what I, I, there's no reference to it in that particular novel, but Bertie is a jazz enthusiast. And so Bertie spends a lot of time with African American jazz musicians who he invariably refers to by the N word. Ooh. Yeah. Um, which, you know, in 1923, for his white middle class and upper class audience, that was just fine. But for us in 2020, that is the opposite of fun. Right. Um, because, again, it's, to put it mildly, it is unacknowledged privilege. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, Very mildly. Uh, so I wanted to have that kind of setting. I wanted you know, that time period, I wanted that tone, but I wanted girls that were smart and kind and no racism. So that's kind of where this series came out. Stella, my heroine, is an American. So mm -hmm. she's, she's kind of, and particularly in the first book, kind of this fish out of water, um, surrounded by these Bertie Wooster types. Um, and George, her he ends up being her fiance. He's her fake fiance uh, in the beginning um, <laughs> because that's a very Woodhouse thing. He's like what Bertie would be like if Bertie was a real person who had actually fought in World War I. Because by the way, all of these guys, you know, are, are these are the survivors of yeah. the trenches in France. So they really aren't as lighthearted and uh, as, you know, Woodhouse would paint them. Um, and who's is again a smart person a kind-hearted person someone who actually does acknowledge other people's right to exist and that kind of thing so but still with the same tone so that's what made it, it. it that reminds me to some degree of uh especially early agatha christie novels where like there are a lot of characters who are either in the war or home from the war or on leave right. or whatever and there's an awareness that there is an experience there that is unlike anything before it, but without like the perspective, the distance and time right. and culture to be able to really talk about it so that it does kind of come off as like, Oh gosh, they're awfully cheerful for world war one veterans, right. you know? Right. Exactly. And I, I think that one reason why people like uh, Christie and Woodhouse were so popular is, is that it it's there, but we don't talk about it. Yeah, because I mean, yeah. Yeah, we're British. We, yeah. um, but if you read a lot of Christie, which I do, she's another strong influence, but, um, and another racist. Um, <laughs> love her, yeah. but, you know, the, the, the truth is the truth. There, there is that breeziness and that, you know, we don't really acknowledge that. 
but then every once in a while you'll have a character who is does have shell shock does have obviously have what we would would recognize as ptsd and that kind of stuff and she doesn't talk about it and whatever but um but it's there you can Mm -hmm. tell that, that 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 is something that she's aware of and that is something that's part of her world but um the bbc did a series marple of the miss marple books my husband just watched all of them Oh my, I love those. Love those. We, well, you see in that, you know, Marple had the boyfriend in World War One, and yeah, trust me, that ain't in the books, but, (laughs) but it, it adds this layer of realism to it, which I thought was really great. Love that series. Love it. Yeah. I haven't watched it yet, but he kept basically bursting into the room to say, oh my God, someone else from Mad Fab is in this. (laughs) And and it, it ultimately, yes. in his opinion, boils down to there having been 12 actors in the UK at any given time. Yes. But, you know. Uh, <laughs> He's right. So, speaking of Stella, tell us about Stella. Stella is the detective and lead in a series of books, the Stella Hart Mysteries. And she is an American silent movie actress. When we first meet her, she is an old lady of 20. Because that's at in one of the later books, she is having a conversation with a Charlie Chaplin-esque film, comic, whatever. And she's giving him a hard time because his new wife is barely legal. And, and he said, well, you know, how old are you? And she said, I'll have you know, I will be 21 on the day I get married. And he's like, oh, well, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, she was going to go to Bryn Mawr, but she hated it. And so her stepfather her first stepfather, Bertie, said, well, don't make her go back. She can just come be in the movies because I'm going to be a movie producer. Um, and so that's how she got into the movies. Her mother is married to Lord Henry Barrington of Barrington Hall. He is her third husband. Uh, she is a fortune hunter who has finally found the fortune she's been looking for. And, uh, but she loves him very much and he loves her very much. Uh, all of his friends call her that horrid American woman. And the first book in the series takes place at a pheasant shooting party where Stella has just shown up. And uh, if we have time, I'll, I'll read you the, where we find out exactly why Stella has just shown up out of the blue. At oh, absolutely, party. yes. Um, George is Henry's nephew. And he has very recently, as in it hasn't even been announced yet, become engaged to a young woman named Mavis Farley who would fit right into a P.G. Woodhouse. Uh, she, she, she is from the ballbuster school of English maidens. The, basically, the uh, way they got engaged was, you know, they had been hanging out together, and finally she said, well, are we going to get married or what? And he said, <laughs> uh, well, blimey, would you want to? She said, well, yes, obviously. And so he said, well, then, all right, we will. You know, so, but Stella is about to come and change his whole life. Um, so let's see. Should I make it short or should it? Oh, it's up to you. Uh, Okay. Uh, I love it. So I'll make it longer. If if you need to cut it. No, uh -uh, not at all. Um, This is all to give people the experience of being at a con, hearing a reading. Oh, cool. And so like you read what you'd want to read. No problem. Okay. Okay. Um, This is like the second, starting with the second chapter of the book. Stella has arrived. 
Uh, she knows that George and Mavis are engaged. She likes George very much. She does not like Mavis at all. She's, she's only just met Mavis. And so she has told her maid that, you know, I can't marry him, but, you know, if there's a God in heaven, he's not going to marry this horrible girl. <laughs> so um, so th that, that's where Stella's at when, when he starts this. By the time Stella made it to the drawing room a few minutes before dinner, the cocktail hour was well underway but she looked and felt like a goddess from the perfectly coiffed auburn curls on her head to the tips of her pink painted toes. No one openly acknowledged her entrance, of course, but everyone noticed. George was standing across the room with Mavis and what were obviously her gargoyle-like ancestors. But when Stella came in, he put his hand that wasn't holding a drink over his heart and staggered backward as if struck with Cupid's arrow, making her laugh. You look refreshed, her mother said in an undertone as she kissed her cheek. Where have you been hiding all day? I met George's friend Mavis earlier, Stella answers just as softly. I needed to take the cure, a hot bath, and a cool nap. You think the girl's a horror? Wait till you meet the parents, Mom answered, sipping what Stella suspected was at least her second gin and tonic of the night. And don't even get me started on that little dog. As if on cue, the little dog in question came bounding across the drawing room, barking her fuzzy fool head off. She leaped up on Stella, staining her pink satin gown with muddy paw prints. Oh, Guinevere, you naughty thing, Mavis cried. Georgie, do stop her before she ruins poor Stella's gown. I am so sorry. Don't be silly, Stella said, laughing as she picked up the wriggling little dust mop before George could catch her. It's only a dress. She ignored the towel offered by the butler and took George's pristine white linen handkerchief from his coat pocket instead. There you are, baby, she said, wiping the dog's paws before snuggling her close. The dog responded to this friendliness in kind, licking Stella's cheek. Been chasing rabbits in the garden, have we? Well, aren't you a good sport, Mavis said, looking like her sherry had turned to sour milk. She is rather, isn't she, George said, his hand brushing Stella's as they scratched them up behind her ears. Mavis clumped across the room and took the dog from Stella's arms. Here, she said, shoving poor Guinevere at the butler, shut her up in my room. She took George's arm and smiled at Stella. I am so sorry about your lovely gown. My maid is an absolute wizard at getting out stains if you'd like her to take a look. I think Sophie would murder me in my sleep if I gave my gown to another woman, Stella said, but thank you so much. Her stepfather, Henry, looked like he was having more fun than he'd had in an age. Shall we go in to dinner, he said, offering Stella his arm. I'm famished. I'm so sorry if I kept you all waiting, she said as he escorted her into the dining room. Not to worry, dear, Lady Carraway said. Mr. Farley had only just arrived himself. Henry patted her arm. You're right on time. Stella's mother was hustling George into his usual seat at Henry's right. Come sit by me. But darling, I've put Mavis there, Mom protested, sounding perfectly sincere. Stella had always wondered where her own acting talent had come from. Now she knew. Mavis's mother looked positively panic-stricken at the thought of Mavis and George being separated, and Mom quite well knew it. You always insist on putting my table out of order. Nonsense, Henry said. Put Mavis in whatever seat you had for Stella. You haven't put her in the kitchen, have you? He all but shoved Stella into the chair on his left before sitting down himself. I want my two prodigals beside me. Mavis's lovely complexion had turned blotchy and her lips were pressed together in a hard little line, but neither George nor Henry seemed to notice. Thanks, Henry, Stella said. I'm dying to catch up. Here, Mavis, dear, Mom said, taking her own seat at the other end of the table. Come and sit by me. The soup had barely been served when they heard the telephone ringing in the front hall. Damnable thing, Henry swore. Why in the world we have to have one of those contraptions in the, inside the house is more than I can see. There's a perfectly serviceable one down at the post office. We keep ours in the stables, Mavis's mother, Mrs. Farley said. If anyone rings, one of the grooms comes to the house with a message. 
But what if Stella should have an emergency in California, Mom said. Of course, you all think me a dreadful mother hen, I know. Not at all, Mrs. Farley said. If I thought our Mavis was halfway around the world doing God knows what but God knows whom in that den of iniquity all on her own, I'd never sleep a wink. Stella isn't on her own at all, Henry said. She lives with her other excellent stepfather, Bertram Scott, the one whose grandfather had all those tin mines. He's a movie producer now. Isn't that right, dear? It is, Stella said. And not to worry, Mrs. Farley. Bertie knows all about my God knows what's, I promise. <laughs> the butler had come in like a shadow in the night and was whispering in Henry's ear. Well, tell them she's at dinner, damn it, Henry blasted. What is it, Mom said. Hennessy says there's some damn fool on the telephone asking for Stella, Henry said, making Stella's blood run cold. She looked up to find George watching her, looking concerned. Tell him to buck to leave us in peace. Take a message, please, Hennessy, Mom said, and the butler bowed and left. I do hope it's not one of those ridiculous newspaper reporters. We'll shoot them at the gates if they turn up, Henry said, won't we, George? George smiled. I brought an extra gun for just such an emergency. <laughs> you poor dear, Lady Caraway said. Stella remembered her. She'd been one of the nicer guests at Mom and Henry's wedding. It must be exhausting having all that attention focused on one all the time. Turns a neat profit, though, her husband, Lord Carraway, said. I saw in the Times that some of these actor chaps make as much as a million pounds a year. Girls, too, if you can believe it. Harold, please, his wife scolded. I'm no Mary Pickford, Lord Carraway, Stella said. I've only done a couple of little pictures for the fun of it. Bertie thought it would be a lark for me, and it has been, mostly. But you know, she's damn clever at it, Henry said. Grace and I were up in London last week and one of Stella's films was showing in the theater down the block from our hotel. We decided to see it and she was jolly good. I see all her pictures, George said. I think she's marvelous. Why, thanks, Stella said, smiling across the table at him. In the hallway, the phone was ringing again. As the entree was being served, the butler came back. Excuse me, sir, he said with the air of a man facing a firing squad. The man on the telephone says it's a matter of life or death. Good heavens, Mom said. Stella, was Bertie ill when you left him? Fit as a fiddle, Stella said, standing up. I'm sure it's nothing. Don't let me disturb everyone's dinner. A bit late for that, Mr. Farley grumbled, his first remark of the evening. You have to forgive Farley, Henry said. Ever since he lost all his money, he's been a bit out of sorts. Mrs. Farley gasped aloud, but Stella pretended she hadn't heard. Excuse me. George was raising an eyebrow at her, and she made herself smile as she left. Thanks, Hennessy, she said, taking the phone. Hello, this is Stella Hart. Finally, a voice that was all too familiar boomed over the line. You okay, dollface? It sounds like they've got you locked in an ivory tower. I've been trying to reach you all night. She slammed the phone down once, then three more times as if to break the connection for all eternity. George came out into the hall as she was putting the receiver down on the table, leaving it off the hook. Okay, Muggsy, where'd you hide the loot, he teased. What? She was too panicked to understand the joke. You're behaving like a cat burglar who double-crossed her partners and absconded with the jewels. He took her hand. The jig's up, kiddo. For once, his crooked smile made her want to cry. Tell me what's wrong. You're closer than you think. She had promised herself and poor Bertie that she wouldn't breathe a word of this to anyone in England, but she had no choice. You know all that money Lord Carraway thinks movie people make? It's not quite so. Darling, if you need money, no, no, not me, she said, smiling as she squeezed his hand. Bertie's last picture cost the lost treasures of Egypt to make, and he wasn't as discerning as he might have been in how he got it. He borrowed money from what he called a consortium of interested businessmen in New York to finish it, promising to pay them back when the picture was released. What's all this got to do with you, George asked, frowning. 
The picture is a big success, but Bertie paid all the people who worked on it first, she said. Then he sort of, well, he spent a bundle on a leading man and a director for his next project. Oh, good Lord. He'll definitely pay them back. He always does, but he's hanging a little longer than they were expecting, particularly with the picture doing so well. Longer than he promised, you mean? Yes, that. She was in no fit state to explain away her stepfather's faults the way she usually would have, not to George. She could never lie to George. The leader of this consortium, yes. He sent his son, Anthony, to Los Angeles to speak to Bertie about it, and Bertie asked me to, well, to distract him. He did not. Nothing awful, she said, drawing him farther from the dining room before he put the whole house in an uproar. I just happened to run into the two of them at the Coconut Grove, and Bertie introduced us. I danced with Tony once or twice, and we drank some champagne. It was all perfectly innocent, really. She hated the way George was looking at her, so sympathetic and horrified all at the same time. But Tony apparently made more of it than I realized. He's gotten sort of attached. George raised an eyebrow. Attached? He's driving me crazy, she confessed. He sends me presents. He calls me night and day. The day I finally threw in the towel and ran, he had hired an entire string quartet to come to the set where I was working and play Come to Me, My Melancholy Baby until I agreed to go out with him again. George laughed, the swine. Sounds like the poor devil's got it bad, Sausage, he said. You should let him off the hook. Just tell him you're not interested. I can't, she said. If I brush him off, he'll remember about the money, and he might break poor Bertie's knees or something. Well, you can't continue scurrying around the globe this way, he said. It's round. You'll eventually catch him up. As he said this, she watched with horror as Hennessy came out, realized the phone was off the hook, and picked up the receiver. Hennessy, no, she cried as he replaced it. Within mere seconds, it rang. Shush, George said, pushing her gently aside to answer it. Barrington Hall, George Barrington speaking. She could hear Tony's booming baritone, but she couldn't make out what he was saying. Yes, Mr. Bartonelli, I've just been hearing all about you from our little Stella. She grabbed his arm and gazed up at him with pleading eyes. She tells me you're quite a chap and she's quite taken with you. He put his hand over hers and patted, giving her a nod that said he'd take care of everything. Problem is, she's my fiance. George, she gasped. Yes, I knew it would be something of a shock, George said, putting his hand over her mouth. That scamp, I should have known better than to let her loose in California without me. She heard Tony say something even more loudly than usual. Yes, a good spanking is probably exactly what she needs, but what can I do, Mr. Bartonelli? I adore her. A short pause. Yes, I thought you'd understand. Another pause. Yes, it's been in the works for years. Her stepfather is my uncle, you see. Pause. No, not that one. The other one, Lord Barrington. Pause. Too bad, yes. That would solve a great many problems, wouldn't it? Longer pause, and George frowned. Now, see here, Mr. Bartonelli, I hardly think... Then he laughed. Yes, I suppose I do understand. I'm just glad you're taking it so well. She wasn't too terribly naughty, was she? Oh, good, good. Glad to hear it. No, no, not at all. That sounds fine. Goodbye. He hung up the phone. I can't believe it, Stella said. You darling madman. I can't believe you told him we were engaged. Inspiration of the desperate man and all that. He looked a little pale. And he believed it, by the way. He said it made perfect sense. Well, what else could he say? She felt as if a great weight had been lifted from her shoulders. George, I swear I could kiss you. Good, he said, his voice rather hollow. You'll need the practice. <laughs> what do you mean, she said. You'll have to make a good show of it, Sausage, he answered with a sickly grin. He's on his way here. What? 
He wants to be certain you're happy with our engagement. Oh, for pity's sake. He's only looking out for you, Sausage. I think he really is quite smitten. Oh, that's very sweet, but dear heavens, could things get any worse? Did you tell him we would just wait around here until his boat arrives? Oh, his boat arrived this morning, half an hour after yours did. She clutched his arm too shocked to speak. He's at the post office, he said. He'll be here in 10 minutes. George, really, Mavis said, coming out of the dining room. This is intolerable. They're about to serve dessert. She looked back and forth between George and Stella, the two of them sort of clutching one another like orphans in a storm. What the devil is going on? Mavis, darling, thank heavens you're here, George said, letting go of Stella to go to her. We're going to have to play a little game. Oh, my God. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But of course, Tony ends up staying for the weekend, and Stella and Mavis end up finding a body in the woods, and so all hell breaks loose. I love it. <laughs> like, that's got so many different things in it that, I mean, like, just the story elements that are all ones that I love. Like, there's, there's what are probably gangsters. There are, <laughs> there's Golden Age Hollywood. There's, like, British upper crust. There's comedy of errors. There's comedy of manners. There's, you know, somebody bursting in and saying, good heavens, they're about to serve the dessert. Like, it's a crisis. You know, like, I love that. That is amazing. Thank you. They're very, very fun to write. So you're working on the fifth Stella now, am I correct? I am, yes, I'm working on the fifth one now. The first two are out. The third one should be out sometime this fall, and I love that one because that one actually takes place in Hollywood. It's called The Baronet Unleashed, and that's where George finds himself in Hollywood. Nice. <laughs> but then there are one more finished, and I'm working on the fifth one. So do you have, like, an end in mind of the series, or are you just going to write them as long as they're fun? I'm probably going to write them as long as they're fun. I actually only intended to write one, but our very dear mutual friend, Melissa MacArthur, edited the first one for me and went, oh my God, this has got to be a series. So I thought, you know, it really could be. People drop dead all the time, right? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, why not? <laughs> right. right now my husband is watching his way through Murder, She Wrote. And, <laughs> nice. and he's like, everywhere she goes, people That's just right. die. Serial killer. Jessica. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so where can people find you? Um, you can find me at Amazon, of course. Um, I have an author page. Um, also, I'm on Facebook way too much. Yeah. Uh, Lucy Blue, uh, friend me on Facebook. I also have a page. I have a website, which is, let's see, it's lucyblewrites at wordpress.com. If you Google me, that should come up. Golly, I really hope that comes up. <laughs> and and that, that's pretty much it. Right okay, now. and I'll put mm -hmm. links to everything in the show awesome. notes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for asking me. This is so much fun. This was absolutely delightful. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons attribution license at ccmixter.org.